0: Welcome to episode 4 of the Pop Anime Comics Lounge. My guest today is none other than the famous Paul Levitz, former president of DC Comics. Now before we get into the interview, there were some audio issues. So adjust your audio appropriately when you're listening to the interview. As well as there are some promos that I need to get through. If you like this podcast and want to support this podcast, best way to go about doing that is check out popanimecomics.com. Check out an article I wrote, click the affiliate links if you're going to purchase something from Amazon.com. Helps support me, keeps my podcast costs lower, and allows me to bring better podcasts to you. Without further ado, we're going right into the interview, right now. How did you gravitate towards comics? When I was a kid,
1: pretty much everyone in America read comics. It was a universal habit. The first thing you bought with your own money... Was either chewing gum or a comic book. Very exciting, twelve-cent cover price. It's how you blew your your allowance. Most of the older kids on the block would have a carton of comics sitting in their basement or their garage. As a younger guy, you'd get a chance to see them. That was your first exposure to all the superheroes, to all the imagination. As a kid, I was a voracious reader in general and devoured anything I could read, including comics. Fell in love with particularly superhero comics and the sort of science fiction adventure that was inherent in them. Was a particularly great fan of Mort Weisinger's Superman comics. He was the editor of the Superman family in those days. And some of the Julie Schwartz superhero books at DC. Those were sort of my first two favorite flavors in comics. Marvel at the time was not as well distributed, very very early in the 60s relaunch of the Marvel line and birth of the real Marvel brand. Um, so I caught on to that fairly late. But I uh, fell in love with the comics I could find, bought as many of them as my mother would allow, which was about three a week, and uh, got deeper and deeper into the habit.
0: So what comics were you reading when you were a kid?
1: Almost anything that had Superman in it originally. Superman, action comics, world's finest. Uh, I discovered Legion of Superheroes after a little bit of time, and that became a particular favorite of mine because of the enormous number of characters and all of the strange worlds. I describe it for the current generation as having the same kind of secret knowledge factor that Pokemon had for your generation. You know, when you were growing up, you probably had a chart in your room of Charmander turns into Char-Lizard turns into Char-Explosive-Thing. Certainly my son, who's about your age, did. And for me, it was the Legionnaires and what their home planets were and what their superpowers were and how all these things fit together that no adult in their right mind was in the least bit interested in. So,
0: how did your family react to your interest in comics?
1: Uh, My mother was a little concerned that it wasn't particularly good for my eyes. Probably right. The print wasn't nearly as good then as it is now, and still small. My father, I think, was pretty benign about it. He took off a week, the week I was graduating elementary school, because he was the president of the PTA. And he really wasn't going, bothering with this three, three comics a week thing. So that was the first week that I really got to buy a bunch of Marvel comics and started my long fondness for the Avengers that week.
0: So in high school, what were you interested in?
1: I was a science geek, mostly. I mean, I had already started learning how to program computers. Uh, Na- National Science Foundation had some kind of crazy... Program where as a junior high student I was able to go on Saturdays up to Columbia University and learn how to program on punch cards for the mainframe. Very, very simple sort of programming. I was going to Stuyvesant here in the city, which was theoretically a science school, and I figured originally that I would do something maybe in chemical engineering. Once I smelled a chem lab, that seemed like a less appealing prospect than it had in theory. Science or maybe a business that related to science. I think if comics hadn't lured me off that path, I might have ended up in marketing or management for a company like IBM back in the day. Comics were one of my hobbies, and I loved reading. I loved
0: reading them, and doing the early fanzines was kind of a natural outgrowth of that. So speaking about your fanzine, how did you come up with the concept to start making one?
1: Well, I had seen several
0: fanzines
1: by that time, and I was subscribing regularly to a fanzine called Newfangles, which was put out by a couple named Don and Maggie Thompson. And that was probably the best source of what was going to happen in the comic book business at the time. Don and Maggie were a young married couple, and the fanzine was a lot of work. so. They announced that they were going to be stopping, but they announced it a year in advance because they didn't want to return anybody's money who had subscribed to it. They were just going to let everybody's subscription kind of naturally run out, and you could order up the remaining issues. My good friend Paul Kupperberg and I were bumming around my parents' house, sitting in the living room. I was 14. Paul was probably 15. He's about a year, year and a half older than I am. And we see that Newfangles is going to stop, we're not going to know what's going on. And we just decided we should start our own. And we threw 16 bucks together and uh, got
0: in the fanzine business. So how did you do research for your fanzine?
1: Originally just by calling the companies and asking for their propaganda. Uh, in these days, I'm talking about 1971, the companies didn't generally announce when their next issues were coming out or who the writers and artists were. Uh, but they had some propaganda, some information that they would use for their uh, distributors and things like that. So first issue or so, got an editor on the phone, uh, basically whoever the switchboard put us through to, and got some basic stuff. As the months went on, started going up to the offices. We were allowed to come up and visit and interview the editors. and People in the business were very supportive, amazingly so, when I look back at it. Um, but... This was really sort of the first TV guide that had ever covered their material. Uh, Often they were putting out material that was completely uncredited, and here was something that was recognizing them and giving them useful information as well. So I think that was part of why they humored us. Now, how did you go about creating and producing a layout for your fanzine? Well, back then there were dinosaurs. Um, I'm not even sure how to explain it to people in the era of digital publishing. Uh, It involved rubber cement, T-squares and drawing boards, uh, electric typewriters, and sort of manually cutting columns of typed material and pasting that into places. Uh, Very, very primitive by the standards of what you're able to do in two
0: seconds today. And then how did you go about distributing your fanzine?
1: The majority of the copies went out by subscription. We sent copies originally to the handful of fanzines that were out there, including Newfangles, which very kindly gave us a plug as, hey, we're going out of business, but you might want to try these guys. There were a few comic shops, very, very few in the country at that time, probably half dozen, maybe a dozen. And some of them started to order packs of 25 copies and presumably
0: sell them to their customers. Maybe they gave them away in some instances. Now to talk about your career a little. When were you first introduced on a professional level to the comic world?
1: Well, I was walking through the DC offices when I was 16 doing the fanzine one day, and Joe Orlando, who was a legendary artist and editor in the business, who was editing for DC in those years, called me into his office and asked me if I want to write his letter columns. I said, I'm not a writer, Joe. He said, eh, I read your fanzine, you write well enough to write a letter column. And that was the first uh, professional work I, I did in comics. I went from there to doing DC's equivalent of the bullpen pages, uh, things called The Amazing World of DC Comics or Direct Currents, other sorts of simple things like that. And then the summer I was graduating high school, Joe's assistant was going on vacation for the summer, so he asked me if I would like to fill in. Sure. His assistant never came back. The man's alive. He's well. He's living a wonderful life. He just preferred to be a freelance writer at that point and I never left.
0: So what was it like to work with Joe Orlando?
1: Was as good an education as you can have on this planet. Joe was a brilliant editor at many things, certainly anything that involved art extraordinarily. He had a very good story sense, very good plot sense. He was not particularly interested in administration, so he was thrilled to have an assistant editor who didn't mind doing vouchers, keeping schedules, keeping track of things, organizing things in files. And I got a lot of support and respect for doing that stuff well and a tremendous amount of training in how to be an editor. A lot of the books Joe was doing in those years were anthology titles, Weird War Stories, House of Mystery. Many of the scripts for those were written by old pros who knew how to structure a story but were tired. They'd written dozens and dozens of stories in these genres already. And their heart wasn't enormously in it. It was a way to make a loop. So So there were many things that needed some rewrite. Joe also, because most of the writers were this worn-out group, was trying a bunch of newer writers, many of whom didn't yet have their craft down pat. So very often my day's work consisted of trying to rewrite someone's That's a wonderful way to learn, because you learn what's right in the material and what's wrong in the material. Joe would go over what I did, um, maybe do some further work on it. Um, But that that was terrific education.
0: So at this point, when you were an assistant editor and working with Joe Orlando, did you feel that you could make a living in this industry?
1: I wasn't planning to. The comic book business was perceived correctly, I think, to be on a path to be dying at that point. So I was going to NYU over here two days a week to take my classes, figuring I'd get a real job, and working for Joe, the other two, and maybe getting a... sorry, getting another day out of somebody else at DC, uh, working in the library or, uh, putting a reprint collection of something together, some other project. But I figured, you yeah, know, it's a great way to pay my way through school, I'll get comics out of my system, and then I'll be a grown-up.
0: So, why did you choose to go to New York University and why did you choose to study business? I was living in the ass end of Brooklyn where I grew up,
1: sort of equidistant between the ends of all the subway lines. Getting into a college was not as hard in those years as it is for your generation and I was an academically strong student uh, coming out of Stuyvesant, decent grades, good SATs, all of that stuff. I could go pretty much anywhere that I could afford to go, but I couldn't afford to go out of town. Uh, I I could afford to pay my own tuition if I stayed working at DC or if I started working at Marvel, but that required staying in New York. So my choices of college were basically, what can I do living at home? Columbia was a much nastier commute than NYU from where I lived in Brooklyn. So I went to NYU. And then what changed after three years of being in school? Several things changed, but the most important was a woman named Jeanette Kahn arrived at D.C., began shaking things up. And it started to feel like things may be different. Maybe comics will have a chance with her. If not, I've saved up enough money I can afford to go back to school and finish up.
0: Let me give this a shot for a while. And then in 1976, on the eve of your 20th birthday, you achieved one of your lifelong dreams of becoming an editor on New Adventure Comics.
1: Did I get Adventure in 76? Maybe I did. Um, the the timing sort of blurs together. I started being a, being an editor in 76, a full editor. Um, I guess Adventure was pretty close to the beginning of it. Uh, and that was very cool because that was a title I had loved as a
0: kid. But just being an editor was very cool. And then in 1977 you began to write. How did you make the transition from editing to writing? I had started before
1: 77. I started, I sold my first scripts in 75, I think. Um, well, as I described it, I was spending a lot of time doing rewrite. That shows you how to, basically how to put it together. I didn't view myself as being a fiction writer. I didn't think that was part of my skill set, but in seeing how comics were constructed, I realized it was something that I, I had learned how to do. And I got a shot at doing first some short mystery stories, then uh, Phantom Stranger. I got a wonderful experience of getting to create what turned out to be a very short-lived comic called Stalker, but drawn by Steve Ditko and Wally Wood, who were incredibly talented people for a 17-year-old to be collaborating with. Got to do a few Aquaman stories. And by, by 76, I was writing more regularly and more seriously. But... It's an evolution over time. I'm still learning.
0: Now, you also were writing The Legion of Superheroes. How were you approached to write that story?
1: Uh, Jim Shooter had been the regular writer on Legion for, I think, about a year, year and a half maybe, since he came back. And then he left to become an associate editor at Marvel and couldn't stay on the book. Denny O'Neill had just taken over as the editor of Legion. Denny was not deeply knowledgeable about continuity or the backstory of certainly the Legionnaires and their complex worlds, so he was looking for a writer who knew all of that. I did. I was passionate about the characters. I probably would have killed anyone else who got the assignment if there'd been someone else competing with me. I was in a little over my head on it, but uh, learned a lot from Denny
0: and. Uh, a couple of stories. So what was it like writing about superheroes that you read as a kid?
1: That's a good question. I don't know that I've ever been asked that one, Andrew. Um, there's a magic to it in that you understand how the reader can feel in the fantasy of it. If it's something you love and you get you get to work with it, you have a real respect for your audience because you remember being the audience. That's a big piece of it. Comics I think also is interestingly a very aspirational medium. I think a lot of people who are comic book readers aspire to being comic book professionals over the years. And to get to do the thing that you particularly loved is a terrific high in that.
0: So how do you research your characters and your writing?
1: Depends on this depends on the character. And something like Legion, where there were hundreds of stories done before I took it over, I reread every one of the stories. And made notes and bought a big blank notebook and there was a page for every character or every Story element and I just started scrolling down what had happened and what could happen uh, When I'm building a character from scratch It's more a case of trying to imagine what their life has been so that you can think about all the different pieces sort of building the biography of the character and thinking about what the logical ramifications of that biography are. And
0: and as a writer, when you're working on comics with many um, backstories, how much control do you have over the events that take place within the comic?
1: Depends totally on the project and the moment in time. Uh, If you're writing a comic that ties to many other comics that are being published, very, very little control. If you're writing Superman no matter how good you are as the writer of that story it's still got to fit at any given time with three or four other people's Superman stories so you can't suddenly decide all by yourself "Well, this Lois Lane chick isn't the right one for him let me shift it around if you're writing something that is set in a more obscure corner of the interconnected DC universe you get to do something more your own for a time. My preference as a writer by and large was to work in the the odd corners. Either to work in the future with the Legionnaires, work on the original version of Earth 2 with the Justice Society, but sometimes you need to fit with everybody else and
0: yep, you get graded on whether you play well with others. Now, you, how do you go about mapping out your comics? I tend to plot
1: A kind of macro plot knowing what the major events will be over multiple issues if that's going to happen sometimes I use a grid format for that just sort of saying all right if I'm looking at the next seven or eight issues what are the key emotional elements which are going to be the main plot elements what's going to move things ahead along the way when I go to plot the individual issue I tend to plot using a flowchart kind of structure each individual issue always changes a little bit from what I had in my original, if you will, master plot. Because as you're actually executing it, eh, something more can squeeze in here, or I have this idea, or sometimes I'll describe as the character starts writing themselves. You know who they are now, and they're telling you, "This is what I need to do
0: now." Now, when does the artist come into you know this entire story mapping?
1: Depends on the project. Depends on the collaborator. Um, Keith Giffen who did some of the most famous work on the Legion with me was a very active participant can't we do this can't we do an issue with these guys can't we do this kind of story can you set something over here Um, he has a very fertile imagination I mean he he was not then officially a writer but he's gone on to be a very successful comic book writer himself as well as a great artist in the field other artists equally talented people but with different approaches to their work Kurt Swan who was the du- the great Superman artist of his generation um, never really displayed any interest in the story other than could you not put too many different Legionnaires in it so it's not that complicated to fit them all in um, and I had sympathy for Kurt I mean it is a pain in the ass when you have to do like that. Comics are a great collaborative medium I'm working with a wonderfully talented, smart cartoonist named Sonny Liu on the Dr. Fate series I'm doing now. And he comes in not only affecting my script when he gets it, he'll find a way to interpret something visually differently, he'll break something in different panels. I'll get an email saying, eh, you know, you're calling for the girl to be this, but I think she could be that. Wouldn't it be more fun if she was more this kind of person than that kind of person? If you want to keep your collaborator's enthusiasm up, you have to be open-minded and not be precious about, oh, no, 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 my idea is everything has to be exactly this way. That's also fun because that really challenges you to keep developing the work. And if you're working with a smart collaborator, Keith certainly was, Sonny certainly was, not that those two were the only ones in that category, but those two were sort of the, the most active participants. Um, then you're
0: kept on your feet, and one and one sometimes equals three. Do you feel that when an artist is contributing, that it produces the best products? I think the more engaged and involved the artist is,
1: the better the product can be. Kurt Swann's Superman stories were brilliant. draws people, drew people, uh, with an enormous humanistic dimension. I don't think he ever had a conversation with a writer in the years when he was working on Superman when I was a kid. The way the industry was organized didn't really call for it. I don't think he contributed to a story in the sense of saying, could you you give me this to draw? But he made the most of it, and I think many of the writers, knowing the quality of the artists like Kurt that they were working with, did really interesting work. For me as an individual it's much more fun when it's a collaborative process. Uh, I look back at what Stan and Jack did in the early days of Marvel when both of them were on the top of their form. Both men were friends of mine. Stan is a friend of mine. Um, I know something about how both of their minds work creatively. I can see the threads of, oh yeah, this is something Stan would have done. This is something Jack would have done. I can see how they added to each other. Um, I respect that, and I, you know, love to, love to achieve a fraction
0: of that in my work. So to change gears a little bit, after many years of writing, you began to climb the executive ladder. When did you go back to editing, work?
1: Uh, I never really went back to editing, full time. I and mean, I was an editor from seventy six to, I guess, end of eighty, beginning of eighty one. Um, End of 80, I went over to the business side, mostly, and stayed in some fashion or another as the the business leader of the company uh, for the next three decades. Uh, Job definition changed over the years, responsibilities changed over the years. But about 20, 21 years, something like that, Working hand in hand with Jeanette Kahn, who was the president of the company then, um, and was really the creative leader of the shop, and then seven seven years or so running the company. After she left, um, I got to edit again for a book we did commemorating the nine events of 9/11. Uh, so I got to be an editor for two minutes and end of end of uh, twenty eleven 20, 2011, you know, 2001, uh, beginning of 2002, um, but that's not really being an editor in the, in the sense of it being your day job. It just was a project I got to do, which was wonderful. But.
0: So while you were on the business side, did you continue to write?
1: I wrote up until 89, um that point my kids, my two big kids, were two and four. The way comics work, the writing was always a, a second kind of moonlighting job. Uh, I did most of it over the weekends. And my kids were reaching the age when I had a choice between doing the freelance writing to make some extra money, or being on the soccer field with them, or taking my daughter to dance class. And I wanted the years with my kids. So I set the writing aside for the next 20 years uh, I did a cu- couple of comic stories you know, one or two one or two every every year or two
0: as something special came along that someone asked me to do but uh, no solid body of work you also have been involved in DC television shows a little bit do you have any episodes that were memorable to you that you worked on
1: you know I didn't really work on I can't 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 claim that level of involvement Um, the guys who make a television show work are the showrunners who who are driving it. Um, As the representative of the company in the process, occasionally you can toss out an idea, somebody picks up on it. Uh, I remember there was an episode of when we were doing Superman as a solo animated show where I had thrown out some suggestion to Alan Burnett, who was the creative leader of the project about doing an episode where Clark Kent's presumed murdered or uh, killed and what has to happen during the course of that. Uh, But the story was Alan's. uh, What I got to learn is I got an appreciation of what the roles of the showrunners in the different media forms were, and something about the
0: dynamics of what makes a good story for each of the different formats. So then in 2010, uh, you wrote a book, 75 Years of DC Comics, The Art of Modern Myth-Making. How did you come up with that book? Well, DC had made the decision several
1: years before that that we were going to celebrate our 75th anniversary as a marketing event, if you will. And the company had reached out and selected Tashin to publish the commemorative book. The editors who were going to put the book together had asked me at the time if I would write it, but I was doing the day job of running the company and I didn't have the time. When it was announced that I was going to step away from the day job, they came back to me and said, you know, we really haven't found anybody who can write this. Uh, would you like to take it on? And I said, yeah, sure. I got the time now. This, that'd be fun. Um, Josh Baker, who was the incredible art director who assembled the book, Had done a couple of years worth of effort already pulling together amazing stuff. Uh, And my job was to step in and write the essay that would just pull the story together.
0: So obviously, how did you do research or help with production and putting it all together?
1: Well, I had lived with the story for over half the time. So a lot of it I had in my head. Uh, Structurally, I built a timeline of every title that DC had published when it had launched and used that as my base timeline for figuring out what to do and then interpolated the major media events over
0: the years against that. And that became the story that had to be told. So to talk a little bit about outside of DC Comics and more comics in general, um, the industry has changed since you entered. And what do you feel those changes are and what do you feel that they're attributed to well we're in what's probably the most rich
1: golden age of comics america's ever had right now in terms of creative diversity a lot of that i'm happy to say began when we began to compensate the writers and artists better in the around 1980 when the major publishers instituted things like royalties and participation in the economic value of new characters that you would create. It's not a coincidence that it's within a couple of years after that, that you start seeing things like Dark Knight and Watchmen happen. Not that the major publishers were the only source of the growth, but they were one of the significant engines. Um, We also did a lot to change the distribution systems, to open up the bookstores. DC did the first regularly published trade paperback program of a comics publisher uh, with some breath and some strength. Kept the titles in print for many years. Those are all things I'm very, very proud of that made a real difference in having the graphic novel era emerge. What's really taking it to the next level now is the diversity of creative voices you're seeing in the field. And that's wonderful to watch, and that's just a generation of people aspiring to do fun stuff and going way beyond what the, the narrower limits of comics had been for most of my career.
0: Also, obviously, American comic books aren't the only comics out there. Do you feel that manga has influenced the American comic book market, either in a positive or a negative way? I think it's generally been more positive than negative. Um...
1: Manga helped to open up the traditional bookstores to comics because manga was very effective in selling particularly back when there were mall bookstores like Walden's Those stores attracted a very good demographic fit for the manga audience creatively. I think we're seeing a generation of young people starting to create comics now who grew up on manga as well as American comics who are doing something of their own synthesis of the two forms. The more wonderful stuff kids can be exposed to, the more possibilities there is for them to find their own voices, whether it's manga or the French bande dessinée. Still relatively under-distributed here in the U.S., but there's a lot of effort being made on that right now.
0: Also, in recent years, comics have been pushed out digitally. Do you feel that has played a role in helping exposing more people to comics? It's hard to tell. Um,
1: It's certainly beneficial because, obviously, you don't have to be near a comic book shop. You You don't have to be near a bookstore. You don't have to wait for a package from Amazon to arrive read about something you're curious click click you're there Um, it's not clear to me whether in fact we've got a lot of people reading comics digitally who weren't interested in reading them in print Uh, I don't think it's cannibalized much of the audience but I think people are choosing to read in a different fashion I think a lot of the comics that are created specifically for the web are creating new audiences in a really interesting
0: way. And it'll continue to be interesting
1: to see how that develops, too.
0: And then, are there any current projects that you're working on right now outside of comics? Well, I spend about
1: half my time teaching. Very, re- very rewarding thing I started when I got up from the desk. Most of my activities touch on comics or writing or publishing because those are the things I know uh, and at this age you do what you know and you work with it uh, I serve on the board of a mid-sized comic company called boom I'm trying to help them a little bit I serve on the board of the comic book legal defense fund which is the first amendment charity for the field De- publishing a book on Will Eisner champion of the graphic novel with Abrams comic arts this year which is my first major prose book since the big Toshin book That'll come out in November this year. I may go a little further afield, but this is my world.
0: And then finally, do you have anything you would like to promo or promote? Uh,
1: Read Dr. Fate. I think it's the best writing I've done in a bunch of years. Check out the Eisner book when it comes out. Uh, It's an incredibly beautiful book. Over 200 of illustrations of Will's art and other art that's relevant to the evolution of the graphic novel and the influences he's had on people. There are things in there that nobody really focused on being connected to Will that I think no matter how knowledgeable you are about the man and his career, you'll find some pleasant surprises in.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Before you go, quickly subscribe to where you normally get your podcasts so that this podcast finds you when new episodes come out and you don't find it. Also, if you would like to support this podcast, please check out popanimecomics.com. And click on those affiliate links if you're going to purchase something from amazon.com. And be sure to check out a project that I'm a huge fan of. It's the Reconstruction, Reconstruction of China. It's a documentary about China and female athletes and you know the truth behind them. And they're still raising some money on Kickstarter, so be sure to check out their Kickstarter page and if you'd like to be a part, you know, throw them a few dollars. They'd really appreciate it. And again, obviously I had a great time doing this podcast, and I hope to see you next week.